We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. How do you balance having a successful and a meaningful life? How do you get the right attitude to work and money so they don't dominate everything? Can you be rich but feel poor inside? My witness today is Julie Wells, who has worked with both the New York elite and inner-city deprivation. She's the author of Inner Wealth, How Wellness Heals, Nurtures and Optimizes Ultra-Successful People. She's the CEO and founder of Golden, which is a wellness platform delivering yoga, meditation, Reiki, and other forms of self-care strategies to high-end businesses and individuals. She holds a master's degree in social work from New York University and began her career in 1995 as a clinical social worker treating disenfranchised adults, children and adolescents. How did you get to straddle these two worlds of social work and the ultra successful? That's such a great question. I always had a passion for Eastern philosophy, spirituality, wisdom traditions, practices like yoga and meditation and breath work. And while I was practicing as a social worker, I was dealing with a very high stress job. And I relied on many of these practices to support my own mental health and well-being and ultimately ended up becoming a teacher and a coach in yoga and in meditation and energy work. And Really, it was a passion and a side hustle for me for several years that while I was working my day job as a clinician in the early mornings and in the evenings, I would go to teach these ultra-successful New Yorkers yoga and meditation. I would also do some coaching in this role. And it was just post 9-11, so a number of years ago, and there was sort of an opening for these types of practices. And that's really how I found myself working with these two demographics really at the same time, which was fascinating. So what did you learn from effectively, I suppose, both ends of the spectrum, people who had virtually nothing and people who had everything? You know, interestingly, I learned that they were equally as happy and equally as miserable. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as one another. And that that really was a profound realization at the time. I would take the subway up to the Bronx and work all day with people who were, you know, struggling to put food on the table. And then, you know, before or after work, I would be on Fifth Avenue or Park Avenue in some of the fanciest neighborhoods in Manhattan. And really, at the end of the day, they were worrying about the same things. Everybody was worrying about their children or their relationships or substance abuse or money. And the themes were all very similar. However, obviously they were coming at me in different outfits, so to speak. One of the things I did notice though early on was that in some cases, the people with less external resources, with less money and and fewer material items were forced to find 
inner resources. They were forced to find joy and connection in ways that don't cost any money. And so in some cases, those internal resources, that strength, that resilience that came from having very little, I think brings or can bring a lot of happiness and groundedness and love and a lot of the things that I think at the end of the day make people's lives better. So in some cases, maybe there was too much of a good thing for my ultra successful clients and that they were maybe less put in a position where they needed to find the things that truly make you happy. Because I think if you've got money, you can just always throw money at something to seemingly solve the problem. Does it actually solve the problems? No, it doesn't. It can make things a little bit easier. That's for sure. And in some certain cases where there's, you know, a very specific medical treatment or very specific solutions that you do need financial resources for, obviously it's a blessing if you're in a position to use your financial resources to create better health or security. So I don't want to diminish the role that money can have in maintaining mental health and well-being through access to resources. But I do think that, you know, oftentimes it's confusing because we don't realize exactly, you know, what is at the heart of the matter that's going to bring us that sense of happiness and fulfillment in life. Because I have to say, as somebody who's sitting in the middle of this spectrum, there are times when I think, well, you know, if only I had this and I could afford that, surely my life would be much better. And it's really rather disappointing to discover that even if you do reach the top of the tree, it doesn't seem to solve your problems. No, definitely does not. Because again, most of the things that people are concerned about, you know, there are some things that money can fix, but many of the things, most of the things, money can't fix. So I think this might be what you're talking about when you're talking about inner wealth. Perhaps now would be a good time to see what you mean by inner wealth. Absolutely. So inner wealth is really about those internal resources. It's about the ability to understand the practices, the behaviors that are going to truly drive mental health and well-being. So for example, an inner resource or inner wealth might look like, you know, a consistent movement practice, a consistent meditation practice. It might look like nurturing rich, deep, authentic relationships. It might look like knowing how to work with our mindset in order to feel as healthy and optimistic in any given moment to really call on the internal tools that we have to feel well or to feel wealthy. And oftentimes what we find is that when people don't have the internal resources, they don't know what's going to make them feel good mentally or physically. They don't know how to cultivate that sense of well-being it really doesn't matter how much money they have, they will not be okay. So inner wealth is that inner abundance, that inner resource, the ability to call on tools to support our overall well-being. And you have a lovely quote in your book from Dolly Parton that I really want to lift up. So I'll give it and perhaps you can uh, expand on it for me. This is what Dolly says, don't be so busy making a living that you forget to make a life. Mm. 
Why did you choose yes. that quote from Dolly? Well, you know, I think it's so common and 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 I am not excluded from this, you know, this problem that so many people face that we really become almost overly goal-driven. We become driven from survival instincts or limited beliefs around, you know, what's possible or whether or not we are okay. And it puts us on this rat race or this roller coaster where we're just trying to progress in our careers. Maybe it's make more money. Maybe it's get that little bigger house or that nicer car. And and we become really driven and compelled forward to have the financial resources to live externally in the way that we think is going to make us happy and feel fulfilled. But in the meantime, we haven't slowed down enough to actually enjoy the beautiful moments in our lives, you know, just the experience of looking in the eyes of our children or our partners or, you know, finding human touch or relishing in the beauty and the magnificence of nature. Or, you know, we just become so propelled forward that we miss the moment. So what blind spots do you see in your clients? What are the common blind spots? Yeah, well, I think stress comes from a lot of different places and a lot of different reasons. But I think when people start to feel stress, when that stress response is activated in our nervous system, and, and that stress response can be chronic and you know really prolonged. We've seen that over the last several years, especially, is that people are in this constant fight or flight mode. And when we are activated in this stress response, we really are almost seeing everything as a threat. You know, we're constantly perceiving danger around us. Even opening our emails can feel like there's danger because I haven't responded to this or I need to do this. And and I think it's really almost getting stuck in that fight or flight response where our nervous system can't downregulate enough to be present in the simple beauty that is around us. And I see so many of my clients get stuck in that mode where they're just seeing everything as a threat, everything as a problem. And they're constantly putting up fires and trying to avoid problems or perceived problems when really, if they could take a deep breath in the moment and allow themselves to understand that everything that's coming at them isn't necessarily a threat and that they're actually safe and that they're okay, that that would be a very, very powerful mindset shift. But it's almost like once they get triggered into that fight or flight, it's very, very hard to find their way out of it. And what are the other common blind spots? You know, as we talked about, I think it's imagining that money or further success will propel our happiness forward. I think it's fear of failure that becomes a blind spot for many people and and really being frightened of somehow not being enough. I think it's, you know, in this constant state of comparison, which is fueled oftentimes by social media and other 
you know, media that we're taking in where we're really unable to get a read on how we're doing and if we're okay. And we're constantly seeing ourselves or my clients are seeing themselves in relationship to other people. Yeah. Those are a few more blind spots that I see often. The ones I see with my sort of business related clients often is responding to other people's stress. Just because somebody comes into your office with a whole load of stress and this is an incredibly high importance for them doesn't necessarily mean it has to be the same high level of importance for you. But it's amazing how many times my clients get flooded by other people's stress, be it their partner, their boss, a work colleague. How do you help people not be flooded? Yeah, I think that's really a practice of knowing how to land in your own body to leverage the five senses, leverage the ability to be mindful in the moment, to land in our own experience. And I think that that takes a lot of practice. So I think meditation practices, breathwork practices, yoga practices help us develop an internal relationship with ourselves. That's sort of the boot camp that we do on our own so that when we are in a situation with another person, whether that's work or socially or in our family, we're really able to center within ourselves and understand what's coming from the inside out and what perhaps might be coming from the outside in. One other thing I wanted to mention though, is, and I think that this is really common among my clients, is that their greatest strength, you know, I use this a lot, their greatest strength is also their greatest weakness. And so their mm. drive, their intelligence, their capability, their ability to get things done, you know, those skills have served them in many ways throughout their lives. You know, they got through school in flying colors and went to the best universities and got the best jobs and were able to have a lot of accolades, a lot of achievement, a lot of positive feedback from the world around that. And oftentimes it's that same strength that you know, has a shadow side that has a dark side to it, which is that they can't stop and that they're workaholics. And they think that that's actually their value. They think that's what's good about them because that's what so many people their whole lives have been telling them is good about them. And so there's not that understanding that I am enough. I'm enough. Uh, well, not only am I enough, but there's a shadow to everything. So even the good things have a shadow. So being hardworking has a shadow side to it, which is that uh, you can't switch off, that you sometimes treat your children and your partner like their work colleagues and you're, you know, driving them on to achieve. And I don't think children and partners work very well with being driven. <laughs> no, it's so true. It's so, so true. I used to say with my own kids, when I was so busy working and running my business and, and running around and, and the urge would be to sort of manage my children, like I manage everything else that's going on. I used to joke and say, I just wanted to put a sticky on their foreheads that said, just love me. <laughs> don't tell me what to do. Don't manage me. Don't push me. Just reminder, just love me. <laughs> and your children are teenagers now, so I'm sure they just love being managed. Oh, yeah. I know. I'm learning the just love me lesson very well at the moment. I think this is one of the things that I'm going to take away from your book is that you need to have inner positive feelings rather than giving yourself one-off treats. 
So we tend to manage by thinking, oh, we've got a holiday coming up and I'm going to have this wonderful treat. And what you're suggesting is sort of inner wealth isn't just for special occasions, it's for every day. Am I getting that right? Absolutely. It's absolutely for every day. Listen, there's so much in life that we don't have control over, right? This world is crazy and there's so much pain and suffering. And at a certain point, it's really about grabbing control of what we can harness, what we can control. And, you know, there are practices and mindsets and all different kinds of rituals that we can bring into our lives that help us stay in what we call sort of a window of tolerance for the stress of the world around us. And I think we're needing to to have that that resilience. So you've got four pillars that make this up. So let's talk about the four pillars and then we'll break them down into individual places and we'll see how they all fit together. So what are the four pillars, first of all? Yes. So the four pillars, really simple framework to look at our own wellness and the people around us, especially for parents. They are movement, stillness, connection, and nourishment. So movement can be any kind of movement. What's most important about these pillars is that you do you, that you do what's authentic to you. So I love to practice yoga. I like practicing Pilates. I love taking walks. These are movement practices that really work well for me. Some people like to run. Some people, you know, my son loves to rock climb. Some people like to ski or hike. I mean, it almost doesn't matter what you do as long as you do something that feels good to you. How do you get a balance between what sort of these movements that calm you down and you sometimes need ones that are going to sort of stimulate you and get you going? How how do you get that sort of kind of balance there? Well, I think, again, that goes back to kind of understanding yourself. What are you needing? You know, do you tend to be on the more sluggish side, have trouble getting off the couch or out of bed? And if so, you know, maybe then you need practices that are going to be more energizing, that are going to get some of those wonderful hormones running through your body to give you a pick-me-up, so to speak. And then for those of us who run on the anxious side or tend more towards sort of a hyper-aroused place where we're going, going, going all the time, there are practices that we need to integrate into our lives to downregulate. Now, of course, we all need both because at different times of the day or the week or the month, we might tend more towards one or more towards another. So maybe in the morning, we take a really brisk walk. And in the evening, we do you know a quiet, restorative yoga practice for a few minutes. So I think it's really about understanding that our minds and our bodies are constantly moving. Some of us tend more towards one extreme than another, and that we need to listen to where we are and practice the type of movement that's going to be most balancing for us at any given moment. But I'm not a big believer in sort of shoulds, right? Like you should be doing this or you should be practicing yoga because if somebody isn't called to it and they don't enjoy it, that's really not the point. Yeah, yoga isn't for me, though surprisingly I've found, do you know what gyrotonics is? I love gyrotonics, yes. Yeah, so I've started doing gyrotonics, which is a sort of a bit like Pilates, but is sort of more 360 degrees is what I'm I'm told. Yes. And it sort of feels a little bit like 
this is how my body wants to move, but it never has, if that makes any sense. It makes perfect sense. And that's really what I was saying before in terms of sort of you do you, like figure out the movement that feels good to your body. We're all such unique beings and that's the movement that you should be doing or, you know, that doing consistently will probably feel really good because at the end of the day, it's actually all about the consistency. So trying to do something that we don't enjoy becomes a challenge when we want to do something consistently, right? Maybe we can push ourselves once in a while to do something that we don't enjoy, But the whole goal is that we're doing something really on a daily basis, you know, or at least on a weekly basis. And so that component of enjoying it is very important. So I've sort of got the sense that yoga can be a calming. I assume it, obviously, if you're doing a sort of a, is there such thing as high intensity yoga? There can be, believe it or not. There are classes these days that, you know, are more rigorous and can really, you know, get you moving and get your heart rate up. But in general, I would say yoga tends to be more of a calming movement practice. And obviously walking is as well another calming one. Give us some sort of lift me up one so we understand exactly what you mean by that. So all different kinds of dance modalities, certainly running or jogging, high intensity interval training, weight training can be very, very energizing and feel great mentally and physically. All different kinds of boxing practices or martial arts practices. So, you know, the types of movements that get your heart rate up and, you know, start really engaging your muscular body. And I think the thing I want to underline here is there's just many more places to go than just the gym, really. And probably these things that we've been talking about are a little bit more interesting than the gym, but that might just be my prejudice there. Let's move on to the next of the four pillars. We've had movement and now we've got stillness. Well, we live in a very oversensitized world, so I can understand why stillness is important, but what exactly do you mean? Yes, stillness. So stillness, first and foremost, is sleep. It's the other half of all of the doing, right? And so that's the great stillness practice. And as I mentioned earlier, our stress response is constantly sort of scanning for danger, or our brains, I should say, are constantly scanning for danger. And when we sense danger, we oftentimes go into a fight or flight, even if that danger is, as I mentioned, an email that's come into the inbox. And then like good primitive creatures, the way our nervous system was wired over millions of years, we can't sleep very well when we sense danger. Because if you were living in the wilderness and there was a tiger outside your tent, it wouldn't be a very good idea to go to sleep. And so it's actually a very adaptive response not to be able to sleep or calm down when we're in danger. So because so many people are in this chronic fight or flight mode where they're constantly sensing danger around them, calming down, quieting the mind, quieting the body is really, really hard because it's going against what your biology is telling you to do, which is to protect from danger. You can't go to sleep because you have to stay safe. So so many people struggle with sleep. It's one of the most common issues that I hear about. And it's really this dysregulation in the nervous system that drives that, that imbalance. And of course, stillness practices throughout the course of the day are what prime the brain and the body to be able to sleep, to downregulate 
when it comes time for rest. So those are breathing practices, meditation practices, a mindful walk in nature. Of course, things like sound healing or energy healing are really beautiful stillness based practices. And sometimes it's just resting and taking a moment to quiet our minds and our close our eyes. How do you get your ultra successful clients who I imagine have got meetings rammed from morning till night to get some stillness into their day? I mean, how do you achieve that? Right. Well, we educate them first and foremost to understand that if you're putting the pedal to the metal and going, you know, 150 miles an hour all day long, and then you slam on the brakes at night, like, of course, it's hard to fall asleep if you haven't practiced slowing down. And so we educate them around this because most of them want to actually sleep at night. They want to sleep. They may not want to slow down during the day, but they do want to sleep at night. And so when we educate them around this practice of how, you know, teaching the nervous system to slow down, to calm down, And doing that in increments throughout the course of the day is going to enable them to sleep better at night. That makes sense. They realize like, okay, you know, I get the fact that my nervous system needs to practice slowing down and calming down and slamming on the brakes doesn't work. So oftentimes we'll inspire them to set a timer on their phones that, you know, vibrates or beeps periodically throughout the day, maybe every two hours. And that's a cue to do a very small stillness practice, whether that's something as small as taking three really full, deep breaths or doing a brief five-minute meditation practice or just stepping away from the desk and going to lie down for 10 or 15 minutes and tune into the body and just sort of check in with the self. These are tools, as long as we make them short enough, that have really been well-received by many of our clients. So let's do the three deep breaths and checking in with yourself now. Would you like to sort of guide us through that? So we really 100% get that and we can actually try it ourselves. Absolutely. It's so simple. And anybody that I've ever worked with can't come up with a good enough excuse as to why they don't have time for three deep breaths. So with that said, just settle into wherever you're sitting or lying down. You can take a moment to close your eyes. This is assuming you're not driving your car. Exactly. If If you're driving, keep your eyes open and alert. Um, You can still soften in your body, though, and just sort of notice where you might be holding some tension in the shoulders and the jaw and the face. And before you do anything, just sort of tune into that natural state of your breath and your body without judgment, without making it good or bad. And from that place, I just invite you to take a really full, deep breath in, filling the sides and the backs of your lungs. And a complete breath out, either through your nose or you can blow out through your mouth. Like you're cooling down hot soup. Inhale again, deep breath in, full capacity, oxygenate. The cells of the body, the skin, the lungs. And then exhale, blowing the air out, letting it all go. Every last little bit. One more deep breath in. And full breath out. You can softly open your eyes if they were closed. 
I was at a festival of ideas and spirituality and sensuality and there were like 300 people there and they, sometimes we did the three deep breaths sort of kind of thing and every let out their breath at the same time and the sound of 300 people going, ah, I mean, it was possibly one of the most beautiful sounds I've ever heard. It really was gorgeous. I love that. And how, once we've taken those three deep breaths, could we just check in with ourselves? I think after you've taken those three deep breaths, just lingering there for a moment, perhaps with your eyes closed and notice how your body feels, where you might be holding on some tension, what mentally you're gripping onto, you know, where your mind is is holding on. And just notice that without judging yourself or making yourself bad for having that tension mentally or physically, and then just really invite it to reset and start fresh in that moment. And I think the important one of all of this is actually doing it without judgment, because there is no right or wrong way of doing three deep breaths. You just do it your way. And actually suspending that judgment about, did I do it right, is sort of a a very small practice in itself of letting go of the judgment that we give ourselves. So thank you for that. Now, the third of the four pillars, we've had movement and stillness, is connection. I'm thinking particularly of touch in this field. Am I right in thinking about touch? Yeah, so touch is a big part of it. Touch is really the way we as human animals were built to survive. Our nervous systems respond to touch. Touch makes us feel safe. There's a reason why young children like to be snuggled before bed because it's giving their nervous system the messaging, the indication that they are safe, they are okay. We as adults are actually no different. That physical touch is so powerful to remind us that we're not alone. And that's one of the most primal human needs. I mean, there's a reason why the phrase safety in numbers, I was talking about if there was a tiger outside your tent, you wouldn't go to sleep. You know, you were safest, we were safest, like with our tribes, you know, with other people in that protective environment. And so I think touch, physical touch reminds us of that, whether it's intimacy with friends or family, whether it is professional touch, massage therapy, different types of body work can be really, really wonderful to our systems for the same reason. So yes, touch is incredibly powerful. I think people have been really starved for touch through the pandemic. So it's been specifically difficult. And we live in a bit of a touch phobic society, isn't it? Because, you know, it's not touching, it's grabbing. I mean, if you're going to be touching somebody, it's got to be with consent, even if it's your partner. Just because you're married to them doesn't mean you can grab them at any moment. But um, it is important to remember that we live in a society that is actually making us less and less touch-related. You know, the way we're recording this podcast, in the good old days, we'd have been sitting here in a studio together. And, you know, at this point, we could actually hold hands. And that would be a beautiful thing. But in the modern world, we have the advantages of you can be sitting in New York and I'd be sitting in Berlin and here we are talking to each other, but we can't touch each other. It's so true. And we don't even realize as human beings the power of, for example, 
having somebody's hand on your shoulder, right? If somebody comes over to you and puts their hand on your shoulder, you know, of course, this is all said within the context of understanding that boundaries are really important and that consensual touch is essential. However, you know, the other side of that is that organic natural thing that happens when people are together and we give each other these little cues that say, you're safe. You're okay. I'm here. I like you. I approve of you. And those small moments are missing. But connection is also authentic connection with other people. And I think that social media, and I know it serves many wonderful purposes, is such a slippery slope for so many of us because we feel like we fill up on junk food connection, right? It's not really nourishing, but we somehow feel connected to people if we're on social media and understanding the power of authentic connection, of intimate connection, I think is really important in this day and age when there's so many other types of connection available. And the fourth one is nourishment. And I think you're talking not just about food here. No. We can be nourished on so many different levels. We can be nourished on a spiritual level. We can be intellectually nourished. So things like being in nature, listening to beautiful music, seeing beautiful art, being in community, which is also, of course, connection. But, you know, all of these things, spiritual traditions, reading an incredible book, learning something new can be so deeply nourishing, in addition to, of course, eating whole foods and a healthy diet. Should we work on these one at a time? I probably don't do enough stillness, I have to say. I'm okay for movements. I'm okay for touch. I could probably do with a bit more nourishment, which wasn't sort of chill with Netflix sort of kind of stuff. So can I work at one at a time or are you going to make me do them all at the same time? Well, you know, I think they're very interconnected and interrelated and they tend to kind of lend themselves towards fueling the others. However, I also don't believe that we can change multiple things at the same time successfully in our lives. And I think what you just said is really what I encourage my clients to do, which is to look at the four pillars and think about where they may need some reinforcement, where they need a little more attention paid, and then focus on that pillar first and find one really, really small practice, really small behavior that they can integrate into their lives to, you know, begin nurturing that pillar. And then after about two months of doing something really consistently in, for example, for you in the stillness pillar, maybe you set an alarm on your timer or you make a practice where after you finish recording a podcast, the first thing you do is take three deep breaths, like period, before you do anything else. And you stack that stillness practice onto something else that you know you're already going to be doing consistently. Then all of a sudden, I don't know exactly how often you record podcasts, but all of a sudden you have a consistent practice that's supportive of that pillar. So that's usually how I coach people in working with the pillars. So how much, uh, you can see that uh, I have a bit of a business background as well. How much stillness do I need in a day? (laughs) Well, I think it's the other half of all of the movements. So if you're a real mover and you're moving a lot, you probably need a little more because you need to balance out kind of that other variable of being such a doer. 
don't worry, because um, I spend so much time sitting down. I mean, I walk the dog, I cycle backwards and forwards between my practice here in Berlin. I do my gyrotonics. You know, I don't do too much movement. It's sort of, you know, a reasonable amount. So I think of it as like a three meals a day, like a morning, noon and night moment. I, you know, right. for me, I wake up in the morning, I do my meditation practice. I try to take a moment in the middle of the day to just land in my body and be present and do some breath work. And then I have a gratitude practice and some other rituals that are stillness related that I do in the evening. And for me, that is a nice balance. Some people need a little bit more than that. Other people, they're lucky if they get one moment in. And how long are each of those three moments? You know, again, I think it's better to start small and do something consistently than get caught up in how long, right? So I'd rather you take three deep breaths every day than meditate for, you know, 20 minutes once a week. I think that it's the consistency that's so powerful. For me personally, my morning practice is about 15, 20 minutes of my meditation. My midday practice is more like a seven to 10 minute session. And my evening practice is probably about five to 10 minutes overall. So, And do you guard these? So if a teenager says, where's my gym kit? You don't respond or do you leap up and get the gym kit? <laughs> That's a good question. It depends on the situation, right? If it's something that I absolutely need to attend to or else there's going to be a big ripple effect, I might hop out, deal with my child and then come back to it. But for the most part, my children know that unless there's something really time sensitive or really urgent, that that's not the time to interrupt me. But I've also designed those times or those practices and those times of days around times when I'm least likely to be interrupted. So I meditate in the morning before any of my kids are even awake because once they wake up, once I get out of bed, once I start doing things, forget it. It's not going to happen. I'm going to whisper what time you get up in the morning so people are not too shocked. 5.30. (laughs) That's a whole two hours before me. Yes, yes. For me to get all my kids out the door to school and have just like a little moment of peace and quiet, it definitely requires getting up on the early side at this stage of my life. And do you go to bed early then as well? Or you just don't sleep very much? I try to sleep. I've learned a lot in my coaching practice about sleep. I do a lot of also education around sleep health. And, you know, we really need seven to eight hours of sleep a night. In fact, sleep is one of the most underrated practices in terms of our overall mental health and physical health and well-being. So I really try to get to bed so that I'm ensuring myself at a minimum seven hours of sleep. I'm cranky otherwise. I'm, you know, I always say the four pillars for those of us who have kids, you know, those babies need movement. They need tummy time. They need plenty of sleep. They need their naps. They need plenty of sweet potatoes and avocados. That's their nourishment. They need to be held skin to skin and talked to. That's their connection. If they don't get those things, the babies are very, very cranky. And we as grownups are just big babies. And so I I find that if I don't get enough sleep, I, I definitely am not so much fun to be around. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits.
One of the great things we're doing at the moment is we're inviting everybody to write in if they have a issue they'd like to me to discuss with my experts. And I have people from literally all walks of life. So the question that's been sent in is from a man. How do I stop worrying about money? It's stopping me from truly enjoying life and causing stress between my partner and I. We will find a nice restaurant, a beautiful garden with linen tablecloths. The sun is shining. Quality time with my wife and our son. But I take one look at the menu and my brain starts to calculate. Should I have something that looks reasonably priced or what I really fancy? And I've stopped listening to the birds singing and following the conversation between my wife and son. I'm totaling up the bill and what everything costs, how much work after tax to pay for everything and so on. My wife knows what's going on in my head and she's irritated with me. She will insist on a good tip for the waiting staff. I won't think they've deserved it. We'll have words in the car. She has no trouble being generous with my money, but if I say that, she will explode. She earns too, except if we relied on her income, we'd be getting takeaway pizza. I worry about my pension fund, how I'm going to pay for our son's university fees, and a thousand and one other fears. In my rational times, I know we're comfortable and my fears are out of kilter, but it's easy for my wife to be so relaxed. She comes from money but I've had to fight for every penny. So, Julie, what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I think that last sentence, I've had to fight for every penny, is really indicative as to what's kind of going on underneath it all. I want to just say out loud that this person is not alone, right? That this is a super common situation, this sense of you know, fear around having enough. And it's real life. I mean, life is stressful. There's a lot of expenses. And when you have a child and university stressors. So I want to talk about how to relieve some of the stress, but I also want to honor that, you know, that this person's holding a lot. They have a lot of responsibility. And, you know, the other half of that, though, is that I've had to fight for every penny. That this gentleman's nervous system is still in the mode of fighting for every penny, that whatever his experiences were earlier on his in his life, before he perhaps could say that we are comfortable, I think was the word that he used, that he's actually safe. He does have enough money. He's going to a nice restaurant, right? He's not irresponsible in these ways, but his nervous system still thinks he has to fight for every penny and that somehow he's not okay. So his nervous system hasn't really caught up with the truth and the reality of what his life really is today. It's what I call sort of an old operating system. It's like using an old phone or an old computer. It's outdated. The information is actually outdated, but it's still kind of driving the machine. And so in this situation, I think that first and foremost, it's important to understand the belief systems behind what's driving the stress and anxiety. So, you know, what does he think might happen? What is he frightened of? You know, does he think he's going to run out of money? So really understanding the storyline behind the anxiety, I think, is one place to start. And then understanding kind of what about that is really just feelings and not based in truth, right? So feelings are feelings. And then there are things that are true. I might be petrified that I'm going to run out of money, but it has no basis in reality. It's not true. We don't have any facts to support that that is really going to happen. So learning to understand the difference between the feelings and the truth is first and foremost. Second of all, 
you know, a mindfulness practice, that practice of continually dropping back into the moment, into what is real and true at any given moment that, you know, for this gentleman that, that he is safe, he is at a restaurant with his family, you know, that he is comfortable, that all of that is true and that all of his storyline and his nervous system around having to fight for every penny actually doesn't need to be part of this experience at the moment. And if you are doing that stillness, mindful practice on a regular basis, not just in emergencies, you will find it easier to actually get into it, to actually focus on your bottom on the table. You know, put your hand on that linen tablecloth and feel the linen. You know, you're in a good place. They've got linen on the tables, hopefully freshly laundered and nicely starched as well. You know, the birds are singing. Listen to the birds. Exactly. And, you know, take our famous three deep breaths. They don't have to be the loud ones that uh, everybody else will actually hear. And then you can reset back onto the conversation that's going on around the table. A hundred percent. And maybe even offer some compassion and some love to that younger part of himself that is so scared, that's really frightened, Mm. that feels really worried and stressed about money, about having enough. Who knows what was said in his household as a child, what the messaging was, what the belief systems are. But sometimes if we can cradle that younger version of ourselves that's carrying around the fear, that part feels heard and seen. And then we can move on. Now, tell me how to sort of do that, because it's very easy to trip off the fingers, send, trip off the fingers, trip off the tongue even, sending, you know, love and compassion to the younger view. How do we actually do that? I think it's actually recognizing like, oh, you know, this is the 15-year-old version of me. You know, these fears, understanding, again, kind of where these fears are really coming from, where these limiting beliefs are really coming from, where the nervous system is living in, in their lifespan and saying like, okay, you know, younger self in your own mind, you know what you're feeling and thinking is based on outdated information. And I understand that this is hard and you fought a hard battle. You fought for every penny that we have. And, you know, and I just want to hear you and honor the fact that these fears are coming from a very real place, but that we're okay. Right. Like that the older version of myself is here. And I know that we're comfortable. You can hear those two versions of himself in the letter. Right. I know Mm -hmm. that we're comfortable. However, I'm panicking. And so talking to that panicking self and really explaining the fact that things have changed and it's okay now and that we understand why he's so scared that little boy or that teenage boy or wherever it's coming from, but that it's not really that way anymore. The same as you would for your own child who was scared of the boogeyman in the closet. And you would say, I know that this feels scary, but it's actually not true. Yes. But if you've had parents that say, don't be so stupid, you know, everything's okay, or it's not as bad as that, or it's worse for the people next door, you haven't actually been trained to say to yourself, it's okay, and to accept it as well. Mm -hmm. 
No. And again, I just want to honor the fact that everything we're talking about is easier said than done. I think that these mindfulness practices, being able to recognize these younger parts of ourselves and these limiting beliefs, you know, this is fairly sophisticated work. And it's not that I don't think that it's accessible. I think it's incredibly accessible, but I think that it starts with really baby steps towards taking some of these ideas and being curious with them and playing with them and exploring them. It's taken me a lifetime to figure out a lot of a lot of this and figure out how to internalize it. It's sort of a bit like when Picasso said it takes you a lot of work to learn to be able to paint like a child again. Exactly. And it takes a lot of work to do these really simple things. So I would say don't beat yourself up. But I think these four pillars of movement, stillness, touch and nourishment gives you some small things that you can do that are heading in the right direction. So I hope they've been helpful to you. I mean, one of the things that's really interested me talking to you is you go into businesses and you work with businesses and you call this wellness and self-care but it could also be called spirituality as well. Why don't you call it spirituality? Absolutely. Well, it is spirituality. But one of the reasons why we don't call it that is because, you know, first of all, the majority of the people that we're working with are struggling with problems that they wouldn't identify as having sort of a spiritual solution to. You know, they're looking for more tactical, practical solutions, and they don't necessarily consider themselves to be spiritual people. And, you know, one of my philosophies since day one that I learned day one of social work school when I was getting my master's was that it's really important to meet people where they are. That, you know, I can come with all of my spiritual ideas and that that's great for me, but that if I'm talking to somebody who's suffering or struggling and that's not their frame of reference and that's not their orientation, what's most important is that I meet them where they are and use language that's going to relate to them or that they're going to relate to. Because as I mentioned, it's connection. It's that feeling of being seen and heard that first and foremost is so essential. And so I think we're, we're just highly sensitive to that. So thank you for being a witness today on The Meaningful Life. I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? Mm. What makes my life meaningful? Well, my work helping other people is always, it's part of my path. It's who I am. It makes my life incredibly meaningful. I would also say that being a mother gives me a great sense of purpose. That's probably the number one thing that gives my life meaning. And then the other soulmates that I found along my path, my husband, my closest friends, those are the human beings that give me sort of a a reason to wake up in the morning and put my best foot forward. So thank you very much for being my guest today on The Meaningful Life. But this isn't where the conversation ends because we're going to be continuing in a moment. But uh, you have to become a supporter if you'd like to hear the rest of the conversation. And there are three ways you can do that. You can go to my website and join up and be a Patreon supporter. If you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe through that. If you're on Spotify, you'll find there are ways to subscribe through Spotify as well. 
If you want to hear more about those things, in a second I'll give you the details, but you'll also hear the three things that Julie knows deep down to be true. We're also going to look a little bit deeper into some of these ideas. You know, how do you go from the practical tactical into something a little bit deeper? And I'm going to be asking her about one of her central ideas. It's about the journey not the destination. You know, how do you focus on the journey rather than the destination? So all of those things you'll find out if you uh, become a supporter. Here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.